All right, welcome everyone to uh, this panel. It's from green flame to phasers, creating in another in another's world. Um, I'm Kat Kruger. I'm going to be moderating the panel here, um, and I just wanted to start off by seeing who is here for the green flame. Green flame. <laughs> Who's here for phasers? <laughs> no pew pew pew. <laughs> uh, what about uh, everything in between? Excellent. <laughs> All right. So we have uh, a great list uh, of, of panelists here. I'm just going to introduce them really briefly here. Um, Liz uh, Spain over here uh, is a lead game designer and creative at Lone Shark Games, who's worked on projects and companies like Hasbro, Paizo, Disney Wizards of the Coast, Penny Arcade, Hairbrain Schemes, and BioWare. I'll have them talk about their, their individual projects um, after I've done the intros here. Uh, next, we've got uh, Sean Merwin. Uh, he's a freelance writer, game designer, and editor who's worked with Wizards of the Coast, Penny Arcade, Modifius Entertainment, Pelgrane Press, Cobalt Press, and several organized play campaigns. Uh, next, we have Teos Abadia, and he is also a... Uh, freelance author and developer who's worked for Wizards of the Coast, Penny Arcade, Dwarven Forge, Cobalt Press, and several organized play programs. And finally, last but not least, we've got Scott Fitzgerald Gray, who is also a freelance writer, editor, story editor, and game designer who's worked for Wizards of the Coast, uh, Schwab Entertainment, Codename Entertainment, Vorpal Quill, um, Game Hole Publishing, Penny Arcade, and many, many more. And I am Kat Kruger. I am Chief Wordsmith at Steampunk Unicorn Studio, where I uh, work for various gaming and entertainment client clients, including Wizards of the Coast. Um, and I'm also the Dungeon Master at the actual play podcast, D20 Dames. All right. Uh, I'm going to just start uh, by going down the line here. And uh, could you just uh, talk about some of the worlds that you've built in? Oh, uh, sure. So at Lone Shark Games, where I work, uh, we kind of have two segments of the company. Uh, one of them is we do a lot of event design. Um, so we'll design like puzzle experiences, escape room kind of experiences, and a lot of those will be specifically designed around other companies' IP. Uh, like BioWare, we did sort of the N7 school thing that was here a couple years ago, um, and uh, when Magic did a big release, the Innistrad uh, new, the C Innistrad sequel, we did a uh, three-country, like, escape room project with them that you know, involved in, like, building a church inside of a convention center in Detroit. Um, <laughs> so we do kind of, like, big things like that uh, with other worlds. And then on the board game side... Uh, which is generally where I play the heaviest because uh, I like to creatively vomit out lots of content, and that's an area that's very good. Uh, puzzles demand high quality. Uh, board games and card games, you just keep throwing stuff at the wall until you see what spaghetti sticks, right? At least my style of design. Uh, <laughs> so uh, for that, uh, I work a lot in cooperative card games, sort of narrative driven card games, very much like RPGs, so I work on things like the Pathfinder Adventure card game. I write a lot of that. Um, and Thornwatch, and also working for other board game companies, uh, like I was lead design on the sequel to Betrayal at House on the Hill, for example. Uh, to continue that metaphor, I have done a lot of vomiting in the industry. Um, I vomited all over Star Trek Adventures. Um, I vomit often in Wizards of the Coast Worlds. Uh, Eberron, uh, Forgotten Realms, obviously, and this little gem right here that Teos and I got to work on, the Acquisitions Incorporated book, um, which was a pleasure and a terror all at once. <laughs> and I'm Teos Abadia, and in addition to being part of the Motley crew working on this Acquisitions Incorporated book, I have worked a lot with Wizards of the Coast of the years, especially on events that run at conventions or adventures that run at conventions that are sort of major experiences around how especially new players can get a feel for the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Hi, I'm Scott Gray. Um, just to spin the metaphor into the ground completely, I'm an editor. Uh, I've been working in RPGs for just a little over 15 years now. Uh, so I'm the person who gets to clean up after Sean um, when he's finished doing what he's doing. 
Um, on, on the RPG side of things, I spend, I've spent most of my time, I actually I had to think about this, thinking about this, uh, thinking about the panel. I've spent most of my time working in other people's worlds on RPG stuff. I've done a few books that are kind of setting agnostic, that are just focused on rules, but most of the stuff that I've done has something to do with a particular world in which the game is set. Uh, when I was working on 3.5 D&D for Wizards of the Coast, I did a lot of work on the Eberron line. Uh, working on 5th edition stuff uh, and working on 4th edition stuff was mostly focused on the Forgotten Realms, uh, both versions of, the, uh, of that campaign world. So the challenge for me has always been trying to make sure that the, the stuff I'm working on is, is fresh and feels new, but also that it acknowledges everything that, that's come before. And I think that working in a shared world, that's really the, what it comes down to a lot of the time, is trying to sort of find that, walk that very fine line. Uh, between both sides of what you're doing. So, um, how do these projects actually come to fruition? Like your latest ones, at least. Oh, sorry, with me? Are you talking about the Ack Inc. book in particular? Uh, yeah, we can start with that. The Ack Inc. book um, was an interesting project for me because I was actually the last person to come on board for it. Uh, Alyssa Grant, the amazing person who runs all of this. Uh, gave me a call and um, said that she had a team in place consisting of Sean Teos, two amazing editors, Michelle Carter and Chris Sims, um, and that they were putting this book together and asked if I would be interested in being the managing editor for the project, kind of overseeing it and shepherding it and all that sort of thing. And I was immediately interested. I said yes almost right away. Um, and immediately at that point went into this binge of picking up all the stuff about Ack Inc. that I hadn't bothered to actually learn before. Because I'd seen some of the shows and I'd watched it. I watched the live streams, read a fair bit of you know, the, the stuff that, the, the, that happened sort of around the games. But there's a difference between that sort of mindset, being a fan, you know, uh, watching the shows, knowing, knowing the stories, and actually digging down into the deeper lore that you need to dig into when you're coming up with a book like this and figuring out, okay, what are we building on and where are we going to take it? Right? What old things do we need to acknowledge? What new things are we allowed to develop? Um, and that was part and parcel, I think, one of the most important aspects of the job. Not just the amazing writing that Sean and Teos did, not just the editing and beating things into shape, but also always keeping in mind that you're working in a living, active world. And especially a world that has the kind of passionate fan base that the Ack Inc. games do. You've got to be very careful because if you screw anything up, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are very, very willing to point out that you've done it um, and to explain what you should have done instead. With Ack Inc. specifically, one of the things that was key to us was that you have a lot of different types of fans, and they are all fans. They're all 100% fan no matter how much they do or how deeply they get involved. So you have some folks who just watch the Acquisitions Incorporated live shows, or maybe they only go to PAX and see that. Right? Then you have some other people who are watching the C team. You have other people who are involved in other ways. And so there are all the different ways that you can get to it. Or you might be brand new to it all, but you're still a fan. So the product, what you're creating, that experience needs to speak to everybody equally. So it can't be so down into the lore that you only reward three people. Right? It's got to speak to everybody. And that's, that's a hard thing to do because you've got to think about how to, what are the big themes that resonate and represent that world appropriately. And then on a mechanical level, you also have people who have watched the show but have never played D&D before. And you want this book to serve as a conduit for them to take the stories that they're seeing and tell those stories themselves. And so that mechanical bit becomes a huge part of what you have to do also knowing that people that have never, never watched Acquisitions Incorporated are going to buy the book because it's a Wizards of the Coast product and are going to judge it based on the rules, not on the story. So you have to work in functionality and narrative and mechanics and all of those realms while you put the book together, while keeping fans in mind. So, Teos yeah. and, and Sean, how did, how did you get involved in... in the whole process to begin with. How should we tell this story? <laughs> well, so we both had early roles in writing in the world of Acquisitions Incorporated uh, at PAX four years ago. Sean wrote a adventure that was here that uh, tied in loosely into the Storm King's Thunder uh, storyline, and I had one as well called Cloud Giant's Bargain. So we, we got our feet wet with writing for that world at that time, and through happenstance, I happened to see Jerry Holkins. Uh, you guys know him as Omadron. 
And um, he uh, said, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a book sometime? And we just began talking. And that conversation took about, you know, really three years before it became real. But, uh, but it slowly but surely began to gather steam, and Sean joined the team, and then... Yeah, it's just, yeah, I was hired by Wizards to write this adventure that would make interns out of the players and they could come in and play and get an intro to D&D and, and get a little bit of the world. And I had watched, or not watched, I had listened to the original podcasts, and so that was what I had to go on, and I got a very detailed um, instruction from both Wizards and Penny Arcade saying this is what we want in the adventure. We want four one-hour adventures, and here's what we want. And it was, it was like 50 pages, and I was like, well, I'm going to have to cut out 90% of that if I'm going to write an adventure to play in one hour. I wrote it. I, wasn't, I live in New York, so I wasn't going to be at PAX. I handed it off and prayed it went well. And I'm lying in bed at you know, midnight, and Teos is texting me, oh, it's going great. Jerry loved it. I'm like, okay, good roll over, go to bed. I, I thought that was it. I, <laughs> I had done my job, and here we go. And as Teo said, it slowly over months and then years became what you see in front of us. Yeah, I would say the projects I work on uh, come from uh, like three different sort of sources. One of them is kind of like your book where you know, we're chatting with somebody else who has an IP, and we're like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if there was a card game or a board game or a puzzle book or something about whatever IP I have. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, and that's absolutely how a lot of projects get started. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, very specifically, my company, because we are an event design company, there are a lot of companies that come directly to us, and with some degree of granularity, they will come to us and like, I need a thing. Can you do the thing? <laughs> and, and, like, the degree of it runs the gamut of, uh, like, we need a puzzle thing. We're releasing, you know, like an HBO TV series and we want a puzzle thing to go with the TV series. And we're like, well, what do you want? Do you want something that, like, online fans can, like, puzzle out together online? Or, you know, do you want, like, a pop-up event at the release in L.A.? What do you want? And they're just like, whatever you think is cool. (laughs) Uh, All the way down to, like, we might have uh, had a company from Japan who's like, okay, we have the card game rights for Star Wars, we want a collectible card game that was going to hit the target market of ages 13 to 22, and we want it to have, like, the deck sizes to be a certain size, and we want everything, like, it needs to be able to use these assets that we already have, and very, very specific that way. Um, and but runs all over the place. And then the third way is uh, we just come up with games and puzzles and things and uh, content, and we'll literally just take it to whoever has an IP that we think fits that model. So my company came up with, uh, like, an adventure card game. So it's a card game as an RPG. It's sort of a Diablo-esque sort of, yeah, Diablo-esque hunt and grind for loot and things, and you kill monsters. Uh, the original game was set uh, in the modern day, sort of Buffy, the Vampire Slayer kind of a thing. Um, but uh, we chopped it to uh, Paizo, and they're like, cool, can you make it Pathfinder flavored? Um, yeah, so some of those projects just end up like that. Like, we have a thing. We're like, oh, hey, Robinsberger, I hear you, ha- hear you have the license for such, such and such a movie. We think this game that we already have will fit that. It's a great point around how the, uh, the companies can often not know what they want uh, or might misinform you. So it happens a lot on projects. Uh, I've twice had a point where I write up an outline of what I will create, and it gets approved. And then something gets said, and I go, wait a minute. Help me understand what that means. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, but then my outline doesn't work that you approved. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That wouldn't work. But you approved it. <laughs> okay, well, how about we do it this way instead? Um, Liz, you work in so many different um, IPs. Like, mm-hmm. how, how difficult is it to navigate sometimes? Like, there's a, that's a, I can imagine there's a lot of information that you have to manage. Oh, absolutely. Uh, these past 
five years or so that I've been working at Loan Shark, my head has become become an amazing sieve for massive amounts of information, uh, depending on whatever project I'm working on. Uh, you know, there was one point in time, a very, very specific point in time, that I could explain to you in extreme detail the differences in the Pathfinder, you know, slash D&D 3.5 world between demons, demonads, uh, demonads, like the whole hierarchy of devils and demons in that world and all of their traits and things. I don't remember it now. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a little bit. But yeah, I just do a, every time I get a project, I do a massive amount of research mm-hmm. on it. And sometimes, some, some projects are very close to my heart and I'm already a fan um, but I try to go in with the, mo- with the mantra of, I need to be a fan of this. I need to find something that I will connect to yeah. on this project that will give me the drive to spend weeks researching it. Yeah. There are definitely times when you might get a project where you're not a fan. Yeah. And you, you literally have to find that thread. Mm-hmm. What does everyone love about this? That, I now love that. <laughs> I, I'm going to love that so much for the next six months. <laughs> I don't love that anymore, but boy, I loved that six months ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love AI, though. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. yeah, but I also like specifically find that when there's like when I come into something, a property that I'm not a fan of, that I don't particularly like, that that sort of tug and pull between my feelings and like I. I feel like there's a lot of good creative energy there, and sometimes those projects turn out way better than the stuff I love. Yeah, absolutely. There, there might be a new facet to it that you didn't see mm-hmm. until you really delved in, and then you're like, that's why people love that. That's why I love that now, and will continue to in the future. Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing is, when you love something, you can be too close to it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to take a step back from that thing and go like, well, what if I'm not me? So like, I'm a really huge fan of the Dark Sun campaign setting. For Dungeons and Dragons and at one point I was given an opportunity to write an organized play campaign for it and it was like yes please and then I had to kind of hold myself back and say but wait you're not writing your campaign you're writing campaign for this audience and it needs to serve that audience that's the goal right and they're going to be people who are brand new to it so you've got to bring people in like they've got to fall in love the way you did but not necessarily about the same elements and that's a hard thing to do too to just separate yeah, I agree with with, um, with what Teo said. One of the one of the most one of the trickiest things to navigate if you're working in someone else's IP is just coming to the realization that if if this is a campaign setting, a fictional world, whatever it happens to be that you love, you have your own version of it because the version that you translate into the version you love is slightly different than everybody else's, and that's an important thing to understand because that's something you have to not set aside, but definitely be aware of as you're working on something. You can't simply write something for yourself. You can't say, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to write the definitive version of Star Trek right, in this game or you know, the definitive version of, of, of the Forgotten Realms or of Eberron. You have to write a version which is going to be absolutely faithful to every single person who's ever read it, played it, or watched it. Um, and that's not easy. Yeah. To, to yeah. that point, like, is there, are there ever lines that you're like, specifically told you're not allowed to cross, and how difficult is that to manage? Um, just speaking on the RPG side and speaking, just, just talking specifically about, about working for Wizards of the Coast, it's, 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 a, it's a loose set of guidelines. Um, Tails and Sean have both seen. There's, there's a Forgotten Realms um, style guide. Style guide which talks about things that you can and can't do. Some of that is, is, is very mechanical. Some of it's just about language, you know, like the way that the characters talk, certain phrases that exist or don't exist. Never, ever talk about a week in the Forgotten Realms um, because a week in the Forgotten Realms is 10 days. So if you write about a week, people assume it's seven days. It's just a nightmare. Um, and don't hyphenate 10-day or you're going yeah, to yell at you. <laughs> not, not him. But... but Beyond the mechanical stuff, there's, a, there's, not a, there's not as many hard and fast rules as there is a sense that it's up to you to know what's come before, to know what the rules are. But it can vary. So like, I had a project early on in the fourth edition organized play days where, working for Sean, where uh, we were telling a story, and as part of that story, we involved the land of Thay, a land of necromancers, and there's this really evil entity, Zastam, 
And so I wanted him to be, you know, up over there, looking down on you, kind of like, you know, doing one of these, like, ah, right? Just the idea that his presence was there. And that, like, you can't have him in here. And back then, there was a really different process than today, where every organized play outline, uh, and even the adventure itself, had to go to the people who write novels and oversee novels. They had to sign off. The people who, who oversee RPGs had to sign off. It was a really thorough process. And eventually, people said, well, why do we have this process? And so it changed, but it was a very interesting thing to not be able to name because they were like, no, too, too, too important. Right? Yeah. One of the things that we had to worry about when we were working on the Ak Inc. book, because the Ak Inc. adventure um, is set in the Forgotten Realms. It's set in Farron. The rest of the book is fairly system independent. Uh, you, could, you, could, you could use it anywhere, and, and, uh, and lots of players are. But when we were working with that, we had to be very cognizant of the fact that we we needed to make sure that we weren't going to be crossing over into anything that Wizards of the Coast was planning on doing somewhere else. Like, for example, everybody now knows that there's a new uh, Baldur's Gate adventure coming out, right? Something like that would have put Baldur's Gate absolutely off the table for us in terms of using it as like a main setting, like setting a big chunk of the adventure there, right? But you don't automatically know that going into it. Uh, and the circumstances of this book were a little bit nebulous just because Teos and Sean were working on the book long, you know, even before it became a Wizards of the Coast book, right? So there was, there was a whole bunch of, there was a very long juggling act uh, in terms of us writing the book in the Forgotten Realms and not being sure we were allowed to. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that juggling act is not just with content, but it's with tone as well. Yeah. Because I think you probably understand what tone Acquisitions Incorporated has. That's not necessarily the tone that Wizards of the Coast wants. So Teos and I were working on the Acquisitions Incorporated stuff, and we're like, oh, we can do all of this crazy stuff. This is going to be so awesome. And then we got the call, oh, by the way, Wizards of the Coast is going to be publishing this. And I went, oh, no. Because yeah. all the people, you know, I would have not sent to uh, Jeremy Crawford or, or Mike Merles or anyone who worked there, or Chris Perkins, I would not have sent them what I wrote there. Right. In a million years. Yeah. Whereas with Penny Arcade, we know their sense of humor, right? And so it was like, oh, they'll love this. This is what they want. And, and it's like if you watch, one of the things that's funny, right, if you watch uh, the way the C-Team live stream games are run, Jerry is a very certain type of DM that takes great uh, liberties with how rules can work. And so we tried to represent that in here. And that is a really different audience. Right? Jerry is like, loves crazy stuff. That's very different than the folks who work at Wizards and these, you know, mm -hmm. these rules. Yeah, uh, so I work on so many different kinds of properties and things, and it really varies wildly uh, by company, where their boundaries are, what kind of boundaries they have, and how random they sort of sometimes seem. Um, so, for example, like uh, we do a game called Sources of the Magic Kingdom that is played at Disney Parks, so Walt Disney World. And Disney is incredibly specific about how their characters appear. Incredibly. Uh, we will spend about two months going back and forth to get a single card approved, and most of that is art approvals. Um, but the mechanics, they kind of give us free reign. Because mm -hmm. they're like, you're the card game people. You do the card game thing. Sure. Uh, when it comes to like working on Thornwatch, uh, that entire world was basically in Jerry Holkins' head. So we, had to, we needed to create a whole bunch of content for it, and each time we had new content, the process was there wasn't like a there wasn't anything written down really for it. There was a few comics, very few comics, but everything else was in Jerry's head. So it'd be like, uh, "Hey Jerry, uh, what do you think about this monster that's sort of a winged thing that f flies down from the trees?" And he'll be like, oh, "No, no, 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 no. I already got a thing for that." And then would write us a giant email about what that thing is or talk to us in person. Right. Um, on the other side of that, like, uh, working for Pathfinder and that, uh, Pathfinder gave me a lot of free reign to invent things and uh, play in that world. I'm like, yeah, I can make a tr character that's a tree, for example, or a character that's a 95-year-old woman who's elderly and, and feeble. Uh, but you can't make a furry. No, no cat people. That's where they drew a line. Like, you can't have a cat person in your desert adventure. How interesting. I can have a goblin. I can have a tree person. I can have a genie. 
no cat person, okay. Mm. Um, and things, and but they're also. How do they feel about dog people? No, no, no furries. I've been told multiple times by Vic, the editor, no furries allowed. Yeah, but they also get really like will give us generally free reign with mechanics, except any time it reflects mechanics in the tabletop RPG. So if I have an axe on a card, a weapon card in the game, it better roll a d12. Mm-hmm. Um, or they'll have very specific appearance things, like uh, they love their iconic characters very much. And so um, one of the characters is a, ma- a cleric of the, uh, the sun goddess. And so whenever she is casting a spell... Even though she can cast a lot of different spells, like canon in canon, whenever she is painted or depicted casting a spell, she must be depicted casting a fire spell. Interesting. Yeah, so there's these weird little pockets all over. Yeah, so like Disney is a tight little envelope of what they kind of want. Thornwatch was, we have no idea what's going on until we ask Jerry. And Pathfinder is, I can play around in the sandbox until I hit a rock. That's awesome. <laughs> um, have you, any of you, ever had an experience where you had a client and you just had to hard nope their idea? <laughs> I'm too mercenary. I would never say no to, a, to money. <laughs> my, my wife was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, so I haven't said no to, to an idea, but, but there are times when I'm when, when I think where the question is coming from or the type of request is misguided mm-hmm. and you know my other said you know just who I am like I will tell people my opinion that gets me in trouble all the time but I will say I don't you know what if and I'll try to not say no because people don't like no's but you know what if this or I think this thing is doing really well these days can we look down this path to try to reorient because sometimes I- ideas do come that, that are really quite kind of bad or, or you think they just they might land with a thud mm-hmm. um, while at the same time you're not perfect you don't really know that it's just your hunch right so you try to apply that expertise to say there's probably a different way we could look at this probably as an editor though that's that's a completely different question um, it is a little bit as an editor I'm very rarely in a position where I can give a hard no to someone because they'll just hire another editor um, <laughs> but I do often I do often work on stuff and I look at it and I go this is not this is not going to work the way they think it's going to work. They're trying to do something, but the intent and the execution are different. And in that case, I will absolutely say to them, look, I think you've got a problem here. I think what's going to happen with this particular section is it's going to, it's going to, it's going to fall flat. It's going to land wrong. It's going to annoy people. It's going to end up seeming you know, like it's, it's going to be problematic. It's going to be divisive. And to give them uh, counter ideas, to talk about different ways to accomplish what they want to accomplish. Um, in terms of sort of like its relation to IP, I think sometimes that comes down to, like in something like the Forgotten Realms, there are certain, there are certain areas that are known for certain things. There are certain, certain characters, certain uh, classic iconic NPCs that have sort of like a reputation for, for certain types of story associated with them. And sometimes it's a matter of um, looking at different options, looking like if they want to do one thing, seeing if there's other options within the canon things that you can draw from and say, well, look, this, you know, in a previous version of an adventure or, you know, like a, an older version of the campaign setting, they did this. What if we do this instead of doing something completely brand new, which might sort of, you know, break people's expectations of what's going on. But it's always ultimately the IP owner's decision mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. They get to, they get mm-hmm. to decide what's right and what's mm-hmm. wrong. Oh, we get to say no a lot. We say <laughs> no a lot. Uh, for like an expi- a very specific example, uh, there was one point in time which every company that had what they saw was a valuable IP under the sun wanted to do a trading card game, a collectible card game. Mm-hmm. Those things to be successful take massive, massive amounts of time, effort, and money, marketing money to make successful. And they just don't work at small scale. They simply do not, and much of that market is completely saturated already by amazing games like Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon. Right? So unless you're suddenly going to aim toward a diff- completely different target market from those games, no. We just say no. Then we try to redirect them onto you know, 
make, make them think that having a different idea is a very good approach. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we say no a lot. For role-playing games, I think an organized play campaign like the Adventurers League, uh, you, you do have to say no. Uh, because mm-hmm. sometimes it, it, it's, it's a way to play adventures, but it's also a marketing arm of, of the game. So you have to push back sometimes when they might be moving. You think they're moving in the wrong direction mm-hmm. um, in terms of the, the audience that they're hitting or the audience that they're leaving out. By having this one rule for the campaign, you might be alienating yeah. a whole group of people. That's true. When you're designing so, an organized play campaign, uh, you know, Sean and I especially have we're not just people writing content we're, we're fans and we're players right we, we participate in these programs and we have for many many years and sean's headed up a whole number of organized play programs so we have a feel for this that comes from the the history of these programs and sometimes we're asked to design an event and we get this feeling that we go well you know i think that needs to be tweaked because i think you're going to really hit a type of problem um and sometimes you're not aware. Like one, there was an early fifth edition project that I was involved in that was a really big deal, and I wanted to have some neat interactive elements to it and some scoring elements that would be kind of very tangible. So you felt that when you did something here, you know, a point went on the board type of thing. So I came up with a number of mechanics, and we were in a time crunch because it was early in the edition. So I said, you know, choose the ones of these that you want. And then I get the finished version, because a lot of times you do a part, you work, and then you walk away. And then you see it later, right? And it's done. And it had all of them in there. And it was way too many mechanics. And I was like, whoa, you're supposed to... And then I had been volunteered into running the first event of this. So I had to now manage all these scoring systems simultaneously. Like, God, why did I ever hand all of these things into them? You know, this was such a, it was my mistake to assume someone would filter this down. Yeah. <laughs> so you've all um, worked on IP that has like long history, um, and I'm just wondering: Have you ever had to modernize some of these? Modernize them? How? Sorry. That, uh... um, Trope-wise, uh, oh, yeah. representation-wise, um, that. Uh, I, th- um, I, I do that a lot. I mean, whether I'm working on stuff for Wizards of the Coast or working with independent publishers, I'm very, I've become very, very dogmatic about making sure that RPG stuff is as culturally expansive and inclusive and up-to-date, uh, trope-wise, as it can possibly be. Um, just because I recognize um, that it's too easy to let that stuff slip just by default. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I know there are, there are certain designers, there are certain gamers who are sort of actively actively engaging in fighting that sort of thing. Those are another issue. There's a larger number of gamers who simply do it because that's what we're used to as gamers, as mm-hmm. writers, right? Uh, when, we write char- when we write NPCs, if we're writing an NPC who's in a position of power, even if we're just making it up off the top of our head, right? The idea of character in, pers- in, in, a, character in a position of power is probably male, mm-hmm. right? When the, when the characters, when the player characters ride into town, you have to come up with a sheriff. The first sheriff that pops into your head is a guy. Because every story you've ever read, every game you've ever played, every piece of fiction from Robin Hood on, the sheriff was a guy. Mm-hmm. So as an editor, one of the things I do is point out to people that they're doing that. Not intentionally, not because they're like, no, I absolutely don't want to create a fantasy world in which you know, there's an egalitarian sense of uh, power balance between you know, genders. Um, but just because that's what we do, it's a default thing, yeah. and so that's something I very actively, yeah, very, very actively try to work. Yeah, with. that's a hard line that I've uh, I take pretty much. Um, I even working with other people's IP, and I know it's my paycheck uh, if they decide to cancel a contract because I put my foot down. But I absolutely will put my foot down mm-hmm. if I disagree with some part of the IP that they want to include. Um, but on the other side of things, like I get to make a lot of decisions with, you know, this is my view of their world, and they're hiring me for a reason, right? So, like, I pointed out to, to Paizo that previously all of their female characters were, like, in their 30s or younger and looked like swimsuit models. <laughs> and they said, wait, but... Freya, the witch character, she's 80-something. I'm like, she doesn't count. She uses spells to make herself look like a swimsuit model. <laughs> and they go, hmm. oh. So, yeah. 
So in the last like three or so years of publishing, they've introduced a bunch of new female characters that are different ages and different body types for the first time. Yeah, well, I mean, Star Trek is a great example, right? Yeah. Back when it came out, it was the cutting edge, yeah. uh, you know, social reform. And I was watching it with my daughter, the, you know, the original series. And she's like, whew, Kirk's kind of a dog. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know, he kind of is. Uh, so yeah. that, that's, a, that's an IP that's updated itself since mm-hmm. it's had so much going on recently. Um, but you, you still have to uh, you know, keep an eye out for those things. One thing that I, I've been lucky that everybody I've worked with has been really positive about that. So, like, when we worked on Acquisitions Incorporated, you know, early on the three of us were like, hey, we really want to have a great diversity in the characters in here. And everybody that was part of the project was like, yes, absolutely, we want that too, and we want it in the art. And if you look at the final book, it really was like we were all approaching it from different directions to create what's there, uh, which is really very good. But even when you mean well, you, you kind of need the safety net of various people to work on it. So I worked on an adventure for Adventures League where I tried to make every character female, just to be different. Like, let's throw it around and... And then actually the developers changed it, so it didn't end up quite that way, but that was my mindset for that project. And then like three projects later, I'm writing Cloud Giant's Bargain, and Scott points out, you know every NPC is male. I go, oh, what? What did I do? <laughs> you know, so you need, that's where you need everybody to be part of a team to, you know, like, oh, wow, I, yeah, I did that. I mean, it was a real quick project, so I think it just, you know, it just, it's just I missed it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's our default instinct to write in the same manner of... It. We write what we know. We write the things we're familiar with. And because fiction, gaming, has been slanted so drastically in one direction for so long, I mean, gaming, you know, from its inception, hit, you know, uh, fiction from the beginning of history, really, uh, those things are ingrained in us, and we need, we need to be actively aware of them in order to change them. And there's also a, a skill to be acquired of how to do it, like how to communicate it. So, like, a Dungeons & Dragons has a, a logic of to how you write the information about an NPC when you're writing a paragraph of text. And so it's actually kind of, we had to have a conversation of like, what's the proper way to communicate that somebody's non-binary within a paragraph of text? You know, how do you, and so we had to look at what examples have been done, and Dragon Heist had come out, so we could look at that example and just kind of extrapolate how to do it, just like everything else we do has to be in the language of Dungeons & Dragons. So sometimes you have to find how to get, modernize the game, but still use the format of what's given to you, right? I mean, Magic the Gathering has done that with its yeah. cards, for mm-hmm. example, right? How do you, in a simple card, communicate who this person is? Right? It's so important. Well, I think uh, we've got about 20 minutes left. I'm thinking maybe we can open up the floor to some questions. Yeah. There's a microphone over there if people want to mm-hmm. queue up. Um, so um, I, I got back into uh, role-playing games uh, in the last couple of years, and I uh, tried to pick up as much lore as I could. You know, I went out and got the 3.5 campaign guide, and I saw it, and I, I, I realized it's sort of a problem. You know, when, you, when it gets, the property has been around for so long, and each generation has added to it. Have any of you ever had, uh, you know, been faced with, like, pruning off something major, or do you think that there are places that it will never go again because it's just gotten too big? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I'm not... Because, again, I'm only an editor. I often don't get to make the call on that, but I'm certainly involved in the discussions on that. Um, There was an example... There there were a number of examples in the adventure um, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which I edited about a third of, uh, in the sense that, I mean, Undermountain is 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 a... vastly expansive. It's been around forever. There's uh, versions in AD&D, there's a version of 3rd edition, 4th edition, you know, there's, it's, 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 it's been through a number of iterations and the new book made a lot of changes to it. So in that, it was very much a matter of, okay, we're changing a bunch of stuff, you know, how, how do we want to walk the line between, you know, we're saying we're embracing these changes, we're saying that this is new stuff, we're not worried about how it connects to the canon, but at the same time, we want to have some touchstones to go back. So a lot of my job as an editor on that book was just to flag certain things and say, okay, in this book we've got X. In previous books it was X prime or Y. And is this okay? Is this what we're doing? Is this intentional? Or did this happen because somebody didn't check the previous lore? Because as an editor, that's a really important thing. You can't, you can't ever make the assumption that something has changed because people want it to be changed. You always have to double-check that and query it and make sure that everybody's on board with the idea that this has changed for the right reasons. And as, as a writer, you sometimes have to ask, not only did this change, but why did it change? 
because why it changed might also change something else that I'll be working on. And even though they didn't say explicitly it, you know, that this over here also changed, the logic says if that changed here, this will change here. So it's, it's good. You know, the goals of the changes are just as important as the changes themselves to know. And specific to pruning, uh, sometimes, like I've worked with Dwarven Forge, and Dwarven Forge doesn't have, they make miniature terrain, and they've been writing now adventures to support their miniature terrain Kickstarters. And the, what's funny is I'll ask a question like, hey, you mentioned these insectoid creatures, is there anything about that? And they'll send me like three pages of stuff. I'm like, well, I definitely don't need three pages, right? Like, that is, I just wanted to know if there was a little, okay, wow. And it's because all of this comes from the creator's home campaigns, and they really have thought out the world of Valoria and everything about it, and you've got to prune that down to, like, what a DM and, and, and people need and just dole a little bit out. Hi. Hey. Um, you said something about, like, just being the editor and kind of playing down, because, like, an editor can really make a world consistent. Yes. And, and a lot of the conversation you guys are having is about specific projects or specific translation for an IP to a game in that case. And I guess you guys have like an editor, like an in-house, somebody who compiles like what you're doing or if you're doing multiple things like a, like a tabletop game and a card game and how are they going to be consistent within themselves and within the world. So it's, it's tough and rough, I guess, jumping into some, something that's big, like a huge IP. And the editor does a lot of work of seeing that it doesn't become bloated, yep. I guess. So, so thanks for the work that you do. And also, what's, what's, what's a good experience that you have gotten when you go back to the creatives and, and you guys as creatives that you got uh, an editor to kind of line it up or explain why this has to change or, or how to make it uh, come together better than just a small... Because it's big arts, small arts. It's yeah. a product, but it's an IP, so... Yeah. Just like an experience, I guess, or, or an example of how that works. Um, I can't. I honestly can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. I know there's been a few, but they've, they've, they've mostly been small. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm probably pretty fortunate in that I, I work with really good people. Uh, I've, never, I've never been in a position where I had to actively fight a creator and say what you're doing here is hugely problematic. You've got something that I think is wrong. You know, on a number of levels, whether that's just you know mechanical or you know sociological, you know, there's some issues. This is this is going to rub people the wrong way. This is going to offend people. I've never had to do that, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, mostly, it's small stuff. I mean, as an editor, my my job is to take really good writing and to make it into great writing. You know, just to push it a little bit further. And um, it's mostly just a matter of looking at small stuff. Tails' example that he said, like, Cloud Giant's Bargain, when I edited that, as I was editing it, I was just, like, I don't, I don't have, like a, like, a checklist. I don't, you know, you, know, you know, count the number of NPCs, male, female. It just, as I was reading it, it occurred to me. And so I queried him on that, because I've worked with Tails before. I was quite certain he's not sitting there in his garret, you know, yeah, fiendishly cackling over this all-male world he's created. And I just flagged it for him. I said, you know, is this, you know, is it okay if we change a few up? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And that's usually the way the conversation goes for me. I point things out. I say, you know, hey, you know, this is, this is potentially iffy, right? Uh, we super trust each other. So I, I, yeah. we were, I think I was at Origins Convention when I got this email. I'm like, ugh, face bombing. And I knew we were on a really big deadline. So I was like, change whoever you want. Like, and so just Scott made certain characters female and reinforced it in the text. And then we're good, yeah. right? Just, but, and, then, and then I made the note, don't ever mess this up again. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things about working on IPs is I get to, like, build out my own little bubble of... Often I get to pick my favorite thing about a particular setting, and I get to really explore, like... I try to capture the feeling, because a really rich IP, you know, will have many tones and many feelings and many experiences about it, and I just get to focus in, microscope in on this one little bit, like, you know, in, in Star Wars great expanded universe there is a specific card game that they play in some bars and I get to try to look at that and be like what kind of feeling of this planet and this bar do I want to capture in the pace of this card game and uh, do that and you know usually these little bubbles are not things that the uh, the grand poobah editor like usually it'll come down to a couple people who have final say over whether something meets IP requirements or not. And it's 
you know, when you scope down real tight uh, on a project, you'll find things that they haven't thought of before, and that's always fun. That's a great point. Yeah, getting, getting a final owner and knowing who that is and knowing what they want is so important. And sometimes it's an editor, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. Sometimes it's just you as the writer because you're going to self-publish. Um, any of you can write in Forgotten Realms. Any of you can write in Eberron. Any of you can write in Ravenloft. It's called the DMs Guild. You can, you put can up, suffer like we do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just let me know and I'll review yeah. your stuff. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of folks get their start there. Oh, and it's, it's a great place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I never thought in a million years that I would be able to use that IP mm-hmm. starting in you know, 1979 or whenever I started playing. Oh, it would be so great if I could write in, in this setting. But, you know, copyright and trademark and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now you can. And it's mind-blowing. That's very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how drastically has it changed when you work on original IPs instead of ones that other people have already created? Like, how has that changed the design process? (laughs) (laughs) I think Liz will take this. (laughs) Uh, so... Uh, I compare it to like writing a sonnet versus free-form poetry. Uh, when I'm working on somebody else's IP, they give me a box and say, fill it. And I try to find where the edges are, and I try to, try to like, I love finding the weird corners. But in the end, it's a, it's a box, and it's got limits as what's been already drawn as the limits of this world and what they're doing. Um, but when I'm working on something original, bets are off. Um, so, like, a really, really direct example, like, the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game and the Apocrypha Adventure Card Game are sister games. Like, they're same root mechanics, same base mechanics. One was once the other, once upon a time, before the twins split, right? Um, but Pathfinder, I'm only allowed to make so many jokes, uh, like, that is their tone. Like, they, we will allow jokes, but only... 3% joke, right? And they have to be this kind of a tone. Uh, they will never let me make my favorite weapon card I want to make, uh, which is a giant tome uh, rope to a big old wooden handle. Uh, it's the Lorax. Um, <laughs> I've tried four times now. They won't let me make it. <laughs> right? Uh, but like an Apocrypha, yeah, I, I do some crazy crazy demented stuff there as long as I can keep it subtle enough but yeah it's just totally free reign but that's like it's really difficult because when you have a sonnet format you have this box to fill you know exactly the size of the stuff you need and what you're going to do and this has to rhyme with that right free form poetry you're going to spend six times as long doing it because there's no boundaries you're just making them yourself the, the only thing worse than writing with constraints is writing without constraints. Yeah. You know, I was a te- I, I taught, I've taught college, and if I go in and say, okay, class, you know, in, in one week I want you to write a paper, see ya. Everyone's going to freak out, right? They want to know how long. They want to know what topics. You know, and and it's, it's those constraints that allow them to do it. Now, if you can work without constraints, it's great. But like, like you said, it takes time. And then what all you're doing really is setting your own constraints, right? That, that then you can fill up. Yeah. I think we have one Great. room for one more. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, just a kind of process question as, as from the writing perspective. You know, how do you kind of step into someone as, as, a, as another character as you're writing them? Either like maybe they're a different gender, have a different background. Like, how do you get in that mindset and like keep that consistency? And um, or you know, how do you keep that to be real, even if you have, might not have had those experiences yourself. How do you like? How do you write towards that? How do you? What's your process there? So one thing I'll say is that so I don't try to. I mean, so I could say I'm a dungeon master, so all the time I have to adopt personas. But realistically, when I'm writing, I'm not trying to be them. I'm trying to give ideas to the person reading this that they can use to be like them in their in whatever way they choose, right? But so I I need to convey the information about the important bits and then that will lead to that person doing that well. So I don't, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I always try to approach it as writing a tiny piece of myself and a tiny piece of my experience blown up to huge proportions. As, as big as I need to blow them up 
to match something. Like maybe I've never been a ranger hunting owlbears, but I have gone on a bird hunt, walk in the hike in the forest, right, and try to just really picture, you know, use the power of rich imagination and explore senses of what I have felt in that kind of position and try to, I always try to come up with, when it comes down to specific characters, uh, I always try to come up with, and sometimes the characters come prepackaged, but some with, with clues on who they are, but I try to come up with a couple of catchphrases, a few personality traits, and a tone, a feeling like what I want the reader or player to feel when playing that part of the game or reading that passage. From my experience, um, I'd also just like to add, like, I, I would really like to see more of this, but I have um, done what's called a sensitivity read. It's something that's more common in, in book publishing, and it's essentially getting somebody who has that experience to review it. Um, I think that's really important, and I think that's something that might be missing right now um, in the industry, in mm-hmm. tabletop industry. Uh, uh, you know, something that's often said is, is you look at a, a famous person that might fit that role, whether it's an, an actor, or, uh, a, a character from a novel, right? Something that you can emulate and then put your spin on it. And, mm-hmm. and that can be a way that you can, because you don't know this person, it's an invented, made up thing, it's, it's just words on a page. But if you think of it as, it's kind of like this character, but this way, and then, then it becomes more real in your head and you can better give information on it. That's a solid DMing tip as well. If you have to bring life to an NPC and you have no idea what to do, it's a lot of work, it's investment, think of a character in a film and just, just channel that character a little bit and you'll actually find yourself, you'll find your mind getting freed up because you'll suddenly be sort of, you'll, you'll be thinking in their speech patterns, you'll be, you'll be thinking about the way they move, the way they interact with other characters. Um, and that just, it's a, it, just, it's, it just sort of greases the creative wheels to get you going. Yeah, and if I'm trying to capture the experience of someone whose life experience is very different from my own, like someone with a very different disability or uh, like a refugee or something, just read a lot of first-person accounts. Like, read their stories and try to find, like, find one that really sings to you, a voice that sings to you, and try to emulate that as best you can. And, yeah, and then sensitivity reads are fantastic. The other thing is usually you're not trying to only spotlight whatever makes them interesting and different. You're also hitting into their role. So uh, what's the the dragon prince that has the uh, uh, mute general of the army, right? She's an awesome character because she's through and through a paladin. You get that paladin-type feel, totally a general, totally competent in battle, and is communicating through sign language. And that's like what you want to achieve, right? Where where it's all true and you're not trying to just say one thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we've uh, just about run out of time here. I'm going to go from Scott down here. If you could just like uh, let people know where people can find you. Oh, um, I'm in Canada, so you won't find me easily. <laughs> uh, if you want to find me online, I'm on Twitter at, uh, as Scott F. Gray. Um, and from there, you can go to my website. My website has email and contact information. So always happy to hear from people. I'm uh, on Twitter, at AlphaStream, and my website is alphastream.org. Um, my Twitter handle is at Sean Merwin, and I do a podcast weekly called Down with D&D, where we talk about the rules, talk about books, talk about lore, talk about brands, talk about whatever we feel like talking about. So you can catch that, uh, Down with D&D, on the Misdirected Mark Network. Uh, and I'm on Twitter as at Voodoo Bunny Liz. And, or you can catch me uh, at booth 5009, the Lone Shark booth up on the sixth floor. Nice. I'm at Kat Kruger, or you can also find me at uh, D20 Dames, which is the uh, actual play podcast. Um, thanks again to uh, all of the panelists here, and thank you for coming out. Thank you. Thank you.